Now that you bring up that subject, Dr. Mayday's case relates directly to it. Pat? Well, this patient is not 80, but she is a 48-year-old female who came to me after being treated at another institution for a second opinion. In the spring of 2006, she had felt a lump in her left breast, and a mammogram showed two distinct areas of abnormalities at 9 and 10 o'clock in the left breast. Stereotactic biopsy revealed infiltrating ductal carcinoma grade 2 in each. MRI evaluation confirmed two 1.1 centimeter lesions between the 10 and 11 o'clock position, and these appeared to be discrete. There were no other lesions. In May of 2006, she underwent left total mastectomy and sentinel node mapping and was found to have node negative disease. She had two separate lesions, both of a micropapillary invasive ductal carcinoma, measuring 1.2 and 1 centimeters, respectively. There was no lymphovascular invasion. Sentinel lymph nodes were negative. Both tumors were positive for ERPR and negative for HER2 by FISH. I want to just stop at this point and say, what would you think about Oncotype in this lady, Eric? Sounds good. How do you approach the patient who has two lesions? Do you add it up in terms of looking at her risk? She has two lesions that are 1.1. 1.2 and 1. So, and I've asked Peter Ravden this. Does that mean it's a 2.3 tumor when you put it, the numbers in? No, and so these are two separate lesions. These are two separate yeah. lesions. Okay. These are not I'm just curious, are these two lesions joined by a C of DCIS, or are they really two very distinct lesions? I realize the invasive cancers are separate. She was at another institution, so I have not reviewed her slides, but these were distinct lesions with only a small focus of LCIS in the surgical specimen, but not extensive introductal components. So from a prognosis standpoint, I don't know whether this is right or wrong. The way I think about this as being worse than one lesion that's 1.2 centimeters, but probably better than one lesion that's 2.2 centimeters. And if you think of it in no other way than just think about tumor volume, it would actually be in between those two. So I worry a little bit more about this patient than the patient who has a single lesion that's 1.2 centimeters. So you said, quote, Oncotype sounds good. Is there a size where you won't do Oncotype and just treat? Well, actually, it goes the other way for me. There's a size below which I won't do Oncotype because in the studies that have looked at Oncotype DX, in fact, those tumors were all at least in the centimeter or close to centimeter range. So in the NSABP studies, in order to get on those studies, women had to have tumors that were large enough for biochemical ER and PR, and that meant that they didn't have any T1A tumors. So I don't think that Oncotype is something that, other than in very, very rare situations, that I would send on somebody with a very small tumor. In terms of very large, sure. I mean, one becomes more concerned about large tumors for a couple of reasons. One, because there is a higher risk of recurrence with a very large tumor, and one may be less comfortable backing off on therapy, which is much of the reason why we do Oncotype DX. The other is that there may be more heterogeneity in the tumor. But here, this is a woman who would have been eligible for B14. She would have been eligible for B20. I have no difficulty, and if there is ambivalence on the part of the patient and the doctor about what to do in terms of subsequent decisions. I think that's when Oncotype comes in. And we've had cases presented in these types of sessions, you know, five centimeter tumors that had low Oncotype. Would you be comfortable not using chemo in that situation? I would have a discussion with the patient. I will acknowledge that I have done just that. I have one patient I can specifically remember who had a tumor that was a little bit bigger than five centimeters but had a 
low-grade ER-positive tumor, actually intermediate-grade ER-positive tumor, that had a very low oncotype score. And after a long discussion together, we decided to do endocrine therapy alone. What age? Mid-50s. And I think that this is an area that hopefully we'll be more comfortable with over the next few years as we have more information. But legitimately, we do need more data. We particularly need more information about the use of oncotype and related tests in patients who have lymph node positive disease. Lisa, oncotype in under one centimeter, oncotype in you know, over three centimeters. Well, you know, I also typically don't send it in the very, very small T1A or even T1Bs unless there are other circumstances. I do send it in T1C tumors. The T3 setting is sort of at the other end of the spectrum. I'm concerned that there were not very many T3 tumors included in the trials of Oncotype. And I'm always, it's maybe shocking for Eric to hear me say this, but anatomy is still important. It's not all biology. And the Kaiser Permanente data, I think, kind of reminds us of this. And in that data set, while Oncotype DX in a population-based analysis certainly played a role in outcome, it was stratifiable by the extent of the tumor, by the size of the tumor. So you do still have to pay attention to the tumor size in this setting. And I don't think there's a lot of information about it. Five years from now, Lisa, are we going to use RT-PCR to assess HER2 and ER? Maybe. I'm a little concerned. I don't think we do a very good job with our current, not as good as we'd like to with our current assessments. And I think we now get a poor assessment of the quantitation, particularly of hormone receptors, which I think is becoming increasingly clear. Quantitation is important. Eric? Quite possibly. Just to add one point, anatomy still clearly matters. And even if it turns out that a test like Oncotype identifies patients with node-positive disease or very large tumors who have a relatively lower risk of disease recurrence, a given score is going to map to a different risk of recurrence in a patient with a larger tumor or with positive lymph nodes. And I actually think that it's pretty clear, in spite of the fact that it wasn't clear in Soon Paik's initial paper, that women who have larger tumors do have a higher risk of recurrence, even if they have the same oncotype score. So can we follow up with this patient? Both her tumors were sent for Oncotype DX testing, and their scores were 15 and 14, respectively. That indicated a predicted 9% risk of distant metastases. She was then put on tamoxifen, which she has been taking since June of 2006. And her menstrual situation? Since starting tamoxifen, she has continued to have regular menstrual periods, She recently had her estradiol and FSH measured. Estradiol was predictably high, FSH was low, and the patient now presents with concerns that since she does not have biologic ovarian suppression, is she getting any therapeutic benefit from her tamoxifen, and should her therapy be changed? And her estradiol is over 700? 723. Yes. So the answer is absolutely yes. There's evidence that she's getting benefit. Mm -hmm. We know that tamoxifen is an effective agent in premenopausal women, essentially as effective as in postmenopausal women, and that measuring hormone levels in this setting can do nothing other than confuse the situation. Which it did. I typically wouldn't be in a rush to add ovarian suppression to this woman's therapy outside of a trial. If she felt strongly about wanting to do something in addition to tamoxifen, I would be willing to do that. But again, I don't know how much that that would add. What would you be willing to do? I'd be willing to add on ovarian suppression, but I would not (laughs) change her therapy in any other way. And I don't feel a need to do that. She has a relatively low risk of disease recurrence. And while 
there's this suggestion in the metastatic setting that ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen is better than tamoxifen alone. Definitive proof of that in the adjuvant setting is lacking. That's why we're doing soft. And this is a woman who still has a relatively low risk. On the other hand, she's not far away from menopause either. So what about you, Lisa? I agree. I don't think that I would add ovarian suppression in her outside of a trial. And that's been our practice. So you want to follow up with what happened with her? Well, basically, again, this was somewhat patient-directed. She really came to the office with a strong desire to have ovarian suppression and because of her concerns of relapse. So I added ovarian suppression. Yeah, it's not like totally counterintuitive. I mean, I don't know what would happen if we did a randomized trial on women like this with high estrogen levels about what happens. So I don't think it has anything to do with the high estrogen levels necessarily. And there was a trial like this that was started by ECOG that Nick Robert ran in the early 1990s comparing tamoxifen with tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression in women just like this. Unfortunately, it was a trial that was started when the war cry was high-dose therapy and bone marrow transplant, and very few people were interested in these trivial issues of endocrine therapy, or so they were thought to be. The study never met its accrual goals. It didn't come close to meeting them. There was a slight numeric advantage for ovarian suppression over tamoxifen, but not statistically significant. Our European colleagues, actually, many of them do believe that adding ovarian suppression here helps. And I don't think what you're doing is remotely wrong. And I myself, if the patient pushed me to do it, would do the same thing.